Welcome, kindred spirits, to the History Chicks coverage of the Netflix series Anne with an E. This is episode six. This episode is titled, Remorse is the Poison of Life. And as usual, that is a quote from Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. The real quote, the expanded quote, is Mr. Rochester talking to Miss Jane Eyre. Dread remorse when you're tempted to err, Miss Eyre. Remorse is the poison of life. And then she says back to him, repentance is said to be its cure, sir. I think that's pretty directly related to our episode today. Oh, I think so, too. Although I have to say that putting air and air one word apart kind of messes me up. <laughs> I think in British English, it would be err. Tempted to err, Miss Air. Oh, my gosh. Why don't we say that? Because it makes so much more sense. Err. Like when you screw up. Err. <laughs> I Can don't we start know. that? I actually uh, subtitled this one, Paying the Price for Love. As I see it. Three main remorses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, obviously, Morella with regard to Mr. Blythe. I mean, I'm assuming you've seen this episode, so I'm not going to say spoiler alert before everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mrs. Barry to Anne, which wouldn't be a love relationship exactly, um, although it is triggered by a love relationship. And Anne to Gilbert. So two out of three of these fall into the sorry, too late category. Mm-hmm. And every one of these things that happens. If they didn't love the person involved so much, it wouldn't hurt so badly. And plus, it's a direct quote from the end of the show. Right. Yay me. So this episode was directed by Paul Fox, who, as a director, among other things, directed a TV series called, and I'm going to spell it because if I say it, I'll have to bleep it. It's very complicated. (laughs) S-C-H-I-T-T-S Creek. (laughs) So I had never heard of it, but it's in its fourth season now. So I guess lots of people have heard of it. I just watched the pilot and I kind of love it. It's the mom from Home Alone. I forgot her name. And Eugene Levy. They play very rich, super rich people who have lost all their money due to poor financial investment and end up living in this small town that they once bought for their son as a joke one Christmas. He also directed several episodes of a Canadian show called Little Mosque on the Prairie, which looks hilarious. It's been in production for several years now, so it must be. Get this. He has a connection with a previous subject of ours. You're going to remember his work, but maybe not his lines. He played one of the people being burnt at the stake at the beginning of the Kate Blanchett Elizabeth. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, that's hysterical. So dark. But a strong tie-in to our back catalog, and I, you know, I'm not sure he got an award for it or anything, but (laughs) there you go. Did he have lines, or did he just scream? You know, whatever lines one has when one is being set on fire. (laughs) So we begin, there is someone running through the woods with a lantern fast, and there is a lot of gasping and uh, heavy breathing, and when this person falls, the lantern light crosses her face, and we see it's Diana. Where is she running? Well, in a minute, we discover where she's running because she bursts into the door of Green Gables. This is the middle of the night, and she is running, runs through the kitchen. She runs upstairs screaming for help. She hits the the landing and just kind of screams, help me. How far of a run do you think that is, by the way? 
I don't know, but these girls make it pretty often. I bet you they'd be really great cross-country runners in modern times. Well, and I know in the books, they could see each other across Barry's Pond, Mm -hmm. the Lake of Shining Waters. Um, And they do that little lantern uh, language signaling. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. But you can see a long way, so hmm, I don't really know. So let's call it half a mile maybe each way. Okay. Farther than I can run like that. That's for sure. Maybe if I was, you know, panicked like she was. All right. I have a question for you. Okay. When she goes into Green Gables, there is still a fire in the fireplace, but everybody's asleep. Now, in my life, you put the fire out before you go to bed. We leave ours on, but of course we have a stove, an iron stove in our fireplace uh, Mm -hmm. because of heat. But I wonder, I keep thinking people used to put a fire garden in front of it. I mean, you can buy decorative ones at, you know, wherever, Pier 1 now, but that is kind of interesting that they don't have a fire guard or anything, but maybe there's enough of a hearth that you don't expect any sparks to leap out. Or or logs to break and roll out. Yeah, I, I mean, know. we just had that big fire not that long ago at the Gillis house. Maybe it was what? just common practice to let it go. I know in the Little House books, they used to bank the fire to keep the coals, but... And, in, and they do have, a, you know, the wood stove to cook on in the other room, so... I don't know. Maybe it was just to make the place pretty. It was like a nightlight. <laughs> now, she does go in the kitchen door. That mm-hmm. might be the closest door, or it might just be the one you know is going to be unlocked. I don't know. But Matthew is no watchman, people. In the books, he has a bedroom somewhere downstairs. He hadn't been upstairs in his own house in years. And the only time he'd been up there was when he helped Marilla wallpaper the spare room. So his bedroom is literally downstairs. She has just clattered through like a herd of elephants screaming. And I assure you, if somebody went barreling through this house, Chris Graham would be like, he would levitate up out of bed. He'd be, before he was awake, he'd be halfway down the stairs. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Chris Graham isn't quite as old as Matthew. (laughs) Well, I don't know. So maybe Matthew's, I'm just thinking of, you know, people I know in the 70 range and sometimes their hearing isn't as good as it used to be. And they're a little slower, as am I. Not that I'm 70, but <laughs> there's a hole I got to climb out of. Yeah, you you have a good point there. It does take them a bit to get involved in the conversation. Diana bursts into Anne's room. Um, we need to wake Miss Marilla. Minnie Mae is sick. Marilla can't come. She's off seeing the premiere. Are your parents gone too? Yes. Okay. So Anne gets up. She's going to handle the situation. Um, Diana says she has a horrible cough and she's choking. And so Anne determines that it's croup. It was like a one-question, two-symptom diagnosis. What's wrong with Minnie Mae? She's choking. She's coughing. It's horrible. Oh, it's croup. That is a pretty common occurrence. So maybe she's used to it. And maybe if she got there and it hadn't been croup, she could adjust for plan B. But as she is, she's going to get what she needs to get. Um, Diana says, Aunt Josephine is staying with us and she's no help. So Anne takes charge. Um, She sure does, man. She just orders Matthew around. And I have to say, he's pretty used to taking orders from ladies so he just nods and heads out like he's like oh okay okay the diana actress is doing great great yeah totally she's she's good at panic so Anne says she has to fetch the ipecac classic remedy for croup i'll talk about that later um (laughs) i've missed you so much they say on the way down the stairs i missed you too so evidently according to later evidence they've been apart for a month they haven't seen each other no that's a lot but and then they didn't even stop Anne was so take charge right from the get-go they didn't even stop to have any of that you know kindred spirit bosom friends blah blah stuff they just like went right into action and Anne can focus when she needs to don't you think oh yeah especially in um times of crisis she's able to just shut off that fantasy 
la la lying part of her personality and just like pinpoint focus. Let's get us out of this situation. So Matthew rides off to Carmody for the doctor and Anne and Diana race back to the Berry house. There's no dialogue. You just see a scene of them running back together. And then we go to the opening song. You're waiting for me to say something. I'm stretched. I fast forwarded through it. But as chance would have it, uh, just this past week, Gord Downey, who is the lead singer for the Tragically Hip, who sings the opening song, he was appointed a member of the Order of Canada in recognition for his work as an advocate for Indigenous issues. Oh, yeah. You talked about that. That his whole last album was um, kind of a storytelling scenario mm-hmm. about one representative child that was taken from his society and uh, treated very mm-hmm. poorly. Yeah, we did. We talked about that in episode three. Um, but I thought that the timing was pretty cool. And there, there's I'll put it on the video on our show notes. But he's like in his usual like jeans and a beat up jean jacket and this hat with a feather on it in this really posh room getting this award perfect actually i loved it recently he was also nominated for a polaris music prize um for that same album well what do you know i know i love i mean this guy is dying of brain cancer and he's still making these contributions to society oh my gosh what a what a hero he deserves that so we get to the Barry's house, and the kitchen has kind of been turned into the medical ward. Oh, well, that's where all the water is. That's where all the heat is. That's where all the, you know, onions are, as it turns out. Folk remedies being what they are. Minnie Mae uh, really does sound bad. She sounds like a barking seal, and that is a hallmark of croup, even now. Mm-hmm. Um, croup, if you've never had a child with croup, is a narrowing of the air passages. It's kind of inflammation. So once you grow up, and your passages get bigger and not subject to such drastic narrowing, you don't really have croup anymore. So that's why it kind of attacks little kids and babies. A lot of people think it's like a lung infection, you know, because they're trying to get somebody to cough something up, which they have to do. But it's not in the lungs. It's in the upper respiratory tract. You know, (laughs) there's a little bit of a mischaracterization of croup. However, this is historically accurate. Um, They used to use Ipecac to treat croup. In the thought that, you know, Epicac makes you vomit. So that's not even where the blockage is. Um, hmm. So Anne's sort of been torturing Minnie Mae, it looks like. The implication is that Anne's been there a while because the bottle of Epicac is nearly empty. You know, do you remember they used to tell us to keep, even when Jet was little, so, I mean, as recently as... 10 years ago, mm-hmm. they used to tell parents to keep a little bottle of Ipecac in the house in case of poisoning. And they don't tell you to do that anymore. They literally tell you never to give a child Ipecac anymore. It's actually banned in the United States. Uh, it causes more harm than good to the esophagus, um, which I guess is part of like if whatever kind of mucus you're trying to bring up is in your esophagus, if you vomit, it's going to take that with it. So I suppose it works. Plus, they thought it was it thinned out the mucus. This is so gross. I hope nobody's eating. But <laughs> it, it thins things out, which also will help, you know, expectorate. But um, because of that damage to uh, people's esophaguses and overuse by bulimics, it was, it's been banned in the United States. I was actually thinking that I might look around. I guarantee you, since, you know. Things, it's a one-way ticket into this house. Things don't usually go out of the house. I probably <laughs> still have it somewhere. Um, I remember even then you had to go to the pharmacist and they had to fetch it from some mysterious corner of the pharmacy. 
and hand it to you. And it was really cheap, like $3 or something. But yeah, you can't obtain it anymore. Uh, did Jed ever have the group? Um, He had the group a lot. I used to buy this stuff, highly recommend, by the way, um, called Johnson & Johnson Vapor Bath. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's so good. And it's still good now if you're like a grown-up person, especially <laughs> in the winter. If you're a grown-up person and you have a congestion a little mm-hmm. bit of that. Go to the baby aisle. It's in. It's the only thing in like an aqua colored bottle, and it's mm-hmm. got eucalyptus in it. And mm-hmm. you just put a few drops in a hot shower, like in the bottom of the tub, and man, it feels good. It does. Taking a bath in it, like sink yourself up to your nose and just breathe it. Yeah, my all my kids got croup, and you know the first place we went and did the right stuff. You know the first place we went was steam, and that's the first thing she does. She takes a kettle and she fills up a basin with this steaming hot water and puts Minnie Mae's face right over it. And then the second thing that she did was spot on for modern day and give her some cool night air. I mean, I take my kids outside on my front porch; they're like all bundled up and hacking like a seal, and we'd be out there for five minutes. And they're like, stars, stars. Ooh, look, I can see my breath. (laughs) Well, and that's kind of exactly what the doctors say. People that panic and take their child to the emergency room usually find that the child is a lot better when they get there because they've been (laughs) exposed to the cold air. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you do get to your doctor, they'll probably give you some uh, prednisone. It's rarely fatal. It's pretty dang scary, I will tell you. We meet Aunt Josephine Berry. She's a book character, although she is not appearing at the correct time. Um, We're supposed to have the maid, Mary Jo. That's the inept adult that's supposed to be in charge. But Aunt Josephine is far more interesting. She thinks Anne is killing Minnie Mae, but really has no knowledge to the contrary. I think that they got on like right from the get-go because Anne wasn't intimidated by her at all. And she actually um, asserted authority over this woman who probably never had authority asserted over her before, and certainly not from a young child. So I think because of her personality, I think uh, Josephine was like, oh, what an interesting creature. But let's get through this drama first. And some of the conversation they have is is my favorite in this whole show. Is Josephine just now getting involved? What I'm guessing is that she has been standing at the front window waiting for the doctor all this time. Mm-hmm. She seems pretty invested in the medical professionals showing up. Uh, so I was loving, loving the blocking, how Josephine and Anne cannot seem to share the space. I love it. It would be so much easier if you would stay out of my way, says Anne. <laughs> I just love it. But Anne really has the place under control. Anne decides, okay, I'm going to get an onion. And onions in the socks evidently are a fever reducer. And I am shocked to report that it is still considered... A swear-by technique for fever-reducing onions in the socks. And do you remember this, Susan? Do you remember our Swiss friend, Jen? Mm -hmm. She taught us years ago about vinegar socks for fever. And this is 2017. If you're in Switzerland and you call the child's doctor, you know, my, my child's running a fever, they'll say to you, have you tried the vinegar socks? That is a medically recognized first technique for parents to get a fever down. I don't know where I've been that this seems like such a common remedy. I don't know. But as Anne says, it's an old wives tale. You've never heard of it. And Josephine says, I may be one, but I'm not the other. And then she says, this I think is my favorite line. Evidently, one doesn't have to be either in order to know it. And Anne looks at her kind of in wonder. And there's a little moment where they're staring at each other. And Anne says something like, I guess not. And they just, it's like, it's such a, uh, it's just a delightfully written scene, I think. 
Well, that just totally piques Aunt Josephine's curiosity about this creature that's bossing her around because Anne says something about she was happy that she learned all this when she was taking care of Mrs. Hammond's twins. And Aunt Josephine almost perks up, I guess. This is something she recognizes. You were in service, she says. Then Anne, my whole life before I came to Green Gables. You know, she's trying to like spit it out while she's doing, you know, the onions and the socks thing. She's putting wood in the stove. Which yeah. Josephine could have helped by boiling more water, but Josephine is not used to such manual labor. <laughs> well, with all that water being boiled and the fires going and the steam and everything, Anne's got on her, everybody does, on their bathrobes, you know, tied in or not, but Anne's sleeves are pushed up and everybody has, except for Aunt Josephine, because she dare not sweat. But, you know, everybody's got sweat in their hair. Like they really, I could feel that room, you know, I thought that was great. So Josephine, though, thinks, I mean, she's been placed. This creature has been placed. You were in service. Okay, I am now moving you to this category. And she even goes further, says Josephine. I see. So Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert brought you in to take care of them in their dotage. Like, I am now firmly placing you in the servant category, and I'm going to treat you accordingly. But then Anne says, no, I was supposed to be a boy. And when I wasn't a boy, they decided to keep me and raise me. And so then, how extraordinary, says Josephine. And then Anne looks at her with a big smile and says, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that because she had this girl bossing her around. She didn't know, like you just said, where to put her. And then she finally was like, oh, yes, here's familiar territory. And nope. Anne's going to pull the rug out from under that theory, too. <laughs> so there's the little delightful moment between Aunt Josephine and Anne going on at one side of the room. And all of a sudden, Minnie Mae starts a horrible choking noise. Um, and Diana panics and brings everybody back to the reality that, as far as purposes of the TV show are going, we have a life and death situation on our hands. The epic string music begins. <laughs> There are a lot of musical cues as to how we are supposed to be feeling or hearkening back to in this episode, you'll notice. Now, I have got to tell you, this scene is not only kind of exactly what I saw in my mind, but better because of the Aunt Josephine bantering, I think, and it's the slate scene all over again. I, I have to say, in the book, it's a page and a half. This whole thing is just a page and a half. Um, there's the servant girl and no Aunt Josephine and a lot less specifics about the treatment. And I think this scene, especially right here, ended up better than the book. I said it. No, I I wrote it down. This is a much better way to meet Miss Barry than in the book. In the book, uh, Anne is sleeping over and they jump into the guest room bed, except it's already occupied by Aunt Josephine. The end. <laughs> yeah. So this was way better. Yeah, I loved it. Because why would you be admiring of a girl that woke you up? I don't know. It's a little bit more of a stretch in the book as to why Aunt Josephine would admire Anne. You kind of have a little softer buildup, whereas this is clearly stamped in an Aunt Josephine memory. So mm -hmm. so they have old Minnie Mae. Poor little actress. I hope this didn't take a lot of takes. They have <laughs> little Minnie Mae on the table, face down with her head hanging down and Diana and later Miss Barry hanging onto her feet to keep her from sliding off. Anne is thumping her back and screaming at her to cough, which I'm sure she would if she could. And really, the drama is epic. And Anne gets under the table with a cloth. And I thought she was going to literally reach down the child's throat, which <laughs> would make more, well, it would 
make more sense than what actually happened. So like, if she reached in with her finger and hauled something out, uh, this whole thing would make sense. But Minnie Mae coughs, evidently coughs up some kind of giant mucus plug. We don't see it. Thank goodness. Thank you, prop guys, for not showing us that. <laughs> and then evidently the dark days are over. And I'm, I'm not sure there's a theatrical the end with croup. I think your passages kind of gradually just widen back up. There's no climax of like woo this happened and now we're past the madness yeah but they just finished it up the here by saying and saying i believe the worst is over and then aunt josephine says i believe i need a brandy and we all know she's not getting one in this house unless you brought it with you aunt josephine oh she totally packed it she she knows these people oh that's true that is true yeah so i can forgive the medical cockabaminess i guess doctors though have my permission to weep at all the liberties with reality going on well on the screen it made perfect sense i was like yeah that's a good idea go for it you know yeah that's what they do for um you know my dad had lung problems and that beating on the back thing is something that they do to help bring things get things moving in there well all right well so that happened everybody's uh Ooh, Josephine is thanking the universe that Anne was there in her heart, I think, because what would happen if Minnie Mae died on her watch, really? <laughs> she would literally have nobody, but we don't know that yet. So if Diana ever has a creepy baby, she's good. She has learned a lot. We see nothing more than two horses arrive at the berries in the blue pre-dawn light. Pretty good use of light, actually, to kind of show the passage of time. They've been gone a long, long time. Um, evidently, that's the Spencervale doctor, according to the book. Matthew couldn't find anybody at Carmody. Everybody had peace outed and gone to see the premiere. So that's why it took so long. He had to literally ride to the next town and try to find a doctor in a town he wasn't familiar with. So think about how stressful that is. You don't even know, like, you have to knock on random doors. How would you find a doctor? And Waze isn't going to get you there, like <laughs> through those back streets and back paths and stuff. I call mine Trudy after um, Gertrude Bell. Oh, like an Everybody, explorer. Yes. Is that nerdy? No. I, I like Trudy's voice. It works. It's not Matthew McConaughey's, who I really like on one of those things. I know. It's okay, baby. We're just going to recalculate. We're just going to recalculate. <laughs> <laughs> so we see Diana and Minnie Mae and Anne asleep. Uh not on the same bed exactly, but, you know, assorted heaps around it. Right. Um, and then Matthew and the doctor in question and Aunt Josephine stand in the doorway. I guess since Minnie Mae is breathing nicely, he can diagnose her from the doorway. <laughs> so he's a good doctor. Miss Josephine has told them about all the treatments and all the excitements. And the doctor says, based on what she's evidently told him off screen, that Anne saved that child's life. I know. And the way he words it, it's your little redheaded girl is as smart as they make them. She saved that child's life, pure and simple. I must admit, she's got a presence of mind unusual in a child her age, says Aunt Josephine. Yeah, basically, she's a child who doesn't really act like one. I like that in a girl, says Aunt Josephine. So why can't all children? Why can't all children act like adults? Ah, <laughs> oh, those troublesome childish behaviors among children. <laughs> so Matthew, the proud papa, is so gentle waking her up. He just pushes a lock of hair 
off her forehead and says it's time to go home. He is so proud of her. Do you see it in his face? Oh, Oh my goodness. Just the way he, like, pushes her hair aside and then kind of wakes her gently by rubbing her cheek. Oh, and she just wakes up and she smiles at him. Yeah. It's a very good scenario. Mm -hmm. So outside, the sun is up. Um, The two Cuthberts are on a horse going home and Anne is waxing poetic about, you know, the trees look like you could blow them away and the earth and life and the thing. And I am really not into it. (laughs) She was kind of sleepy. She wasn't putting everything into it. She's usually a lot more uh, energetic, but she's been up, you know, all night with this, you know, crisis. So the part that I do like. Anne says, I'm so glad Mrs. Hammond had three pairs of twins, or I mightn't have known what to do. And then Matthew, profound as could be, says, life's funny, like that. (gasps) Ah, like all that had gone before, all the trauma, all the stress had led up to this one moment. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the good things that come out of bad, yeah. That's something we should probably keep in our mind for the rest of this episode. Man. So Marilla is home from her field trip to see the premiere. And her look when she comes in the door is pure delight. I love it. Go back just to see the look on her face. She cannot (laughs) wait to see Anne. Mm -hmm. I rewound it. And I looked at her again and again and again and again. Oh, I'm so glad to be home. And where's my my family? (laughs) And she is justifiably panic-stricken to see Matthew slumped in a chair. That is... Not usual at all. She literally thinks he must have had a heart attack or something. But once he wakes up, it's old, you know, scolding sister schedule time. (laughs) Like, why are you sleeping in the middle of the day? The cat's away. The mice will play. Duh. Hey, you know, so he's sitting in that chair. He's got like a blanket wrapped around him. It's a rocking chair. He's got his feet up on a bench. You know, it's the best lazy boy recliner that he can make. (laughs) <laughs> since they aren't going to be invented until 1928. Aww. But he's onto something. I know. He's onto something there, right? And he tells her, he kind of plays with her, I think, because mm-hmm. she clearly wants answers and she wants them right now. He's like, well, I'll tell you about it over coffee. Do you think she like he was hinting for her to make it? I wrote, I hope he's planning to make that coffee because the whole tapping the kettle thing. I was like, dude, I hope you're bending down at the end there to fill that kettle because there's nothing like coming back from vacation and being hitched right to the wagon. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm like, because if that happened to my house, that little picking up, obviously it's cold because he's picking it up and hitting it with his hand. Like, hint, hint, woman. She doesn't even have her hat off yet. I'm going to trust in Matthew's good nature that he can at least fill the kettle and stick it on the hob. (laughs) Okay. I'm hoping. And it's coffee, not tea, people. Well, you know, these people have been drinking coffee in the mornings. They have been. Oh, yeah, that's true. How much in the morning was it, do you think? Huh? Well, I mean, how? what time do you think she came home? It was not like first morning when they got home. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. They do. I think I've seen them drinking tea only when company comes over. Gilbert, over at his house, is watching over his dad who is in bed, and I tried to see what he was studying, but this part I watched on my phone, so I couldn't see. I tried to, I, and I was on the big TV. It looked like there was words, but then there was, like, equation involved in there, so I'm not, I don't know. It was math, words. <laughs> oh, okay. 
his dad is talking to him inspirationally, I guess. And I, you know what? I love the way they've got Gilbert's face in the mirror as dad and he are having this conversation. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And his dad starts, the best thing about being sick was traveling west again and a train. I do love a train. And he says, it's a big world, son. Remember that. And Gilbert is disturbed. And I have to tell you, it does sound like bits of final advice before I go. Like the end is near. Oh, I thought so too. And dad, while Gilbert was doing his homework, dad woke up. That is about all he got out before he went back to sleep. Like there was no wide awake time for a half an hour or something to have a chat. There was, there was less than a minute. Oh, I know. Gilbert has never looked more like a little tiny kid than he does right now. Yeah. Lost. That's Mm -hmm. a good word. Yeah. And he's like swallowing his, he doesn't actually cry, but his face kind of blanches and he swallows back the tears, you know, he's like, oh, this is serious. And he's, you know, he's trying not to react, I guess, maybe in front of his dad. Right. So over at Green Gables, the front door opens for the, what, fourth time in 40 years we're up to now? (laughs) Uh, Well, there was the ladies from the PMS club. Let's see. What was I counting? I was counting the minister uh, who got Anne in trouble. Right. I was counting Diana and Ruby and then Mrs. Barry inviting them to tea. And then this time. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because the women, the PMS women came to the side door because it was, there was like that porch thing going on. Oh, maybe they did come to the front door. Uh, we're, we're at four or five. We're at four or five. Okay. okay. <laughs> like, this is no, this is really important. We need to hammer this out right now. <laughs> well, I'm relieved. I am relieved that they're using first names. They're using Marilla and Eliza. That is a good sign. I know it's a subtle thing, but I'm, I'm very glad. It is so hard to apologize, isn't it? But she really does. She really does just start out. I am here to apologize and I want to see your remarkable, wonderful Anne. It looks sincere. It feels sincere. And Marilla says that Anne's still asleep, but you're welcome to come in. And she gives her the nicest, kindest, I told you so look I've ever seen. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But that sound, that sound of her apology, that was the sound of her flipping over to team Anne. I do think so. And I want to hear the rest of this conversation, but I know we're not going to hear it. Like, I wonder, I wonder what that conversation is going to be. I'm just so interested. I'm sure it's going to be a recap of the events and um, there might be crying. There was crying in the book. I'm glad Mrs. Barry's apologizing, but I wish it hadn't taken such a drastic step to get it done. You know what I mean? Right. Once she saw Anne do that thing at the Gillis house, you know, where she ran in and closed all the windows and stuff, Anne was kind of like the town hero. Right. But then she quickly plummeted after the tea party. So I don't know if Mrs. Barry's um, loyalties are all that solid. Oh, I see what you're saying. I hope they are. I hope this is the thing that, you know, pushes her down and puts the lid on being snotty, Mrs. Barry. Well, at least snotty to Anne. So the next thing we see is Matthew opening the gate and Mrs. Barry and her fancy covered carriage with a driver is inside. And he says, Mrs. Barry, and kind of tips his head. And she says, thank you, Matthew. Again, with the first names. Nice. Matthew just wasn't on the right page yet. He thought we were still, you know, <laughs> we're still using Mr. and Mrs. and formal titles. But nope, Eliza's moved on. Would a single man refer to a lady as Eliza? No. Ever? No, probably not. I don't no. think he ever would. Not unless he was Alexander Hamilton singing a song. <laughs> that rebel. 
Yeah, I was going to say I still call my own husband Mr. Graham, so what do I know? I know. That's so cute. I love that. And he answers, Mrs. <laughs> so Anne comes down the stairs and uh, idly wonders how the premier's visit was. And Marilla says that uh, he didn't get the job for his looks. That's for sure. And <laughs> I have to tell you, I am not sure what premier we're supposed to think this is. Okay. Oh, just... thank you. Thank you so much. I like tripped into a premier puddle with this one. Well, so in 1896, if we're still in 1896, because we did have a timestamp, um, but if if we've moved on, even 1897, same guy, the premier was a liberal named Frederick Peters. Okay, so I discarded that whole idea, and I thought, well, okay, when the book was written, right, 1908. Okay, so that was no Francis Hazard, a liberal. Even the prime minister of all of Canada in 1896 was a liberal. I don't know. So further research points to a man named John McDonald, um, who was a long-term conservative, famous for having a giant nose. And he was the premier while L.M. Montgomery was growing up. And my annotated Anne of Green Gables seems to think that's the premier they're referring to. Thank you so much. I was so tripped up. It's I like I have names written down and then crossed off because it didn't work. And excellent. Wait, what was his name again? John McDonald. So it doesn't okay. really make any sense in the timeline, but it didn't in the book either. Okay. So that was noted in the annotated uh, Anne of Green Gables that I have, that that's probably the guy. Because the guy notorious for, you know, how Abraham Lincoln was n noted for his non-handsomeness, kind of. Same with this mm -hmm. guy. Yeah. Did you notice that she was working, she was sewing at the table when Anne comes downstairs? And do you know what she was sewing? I don't. What was she sewing? She was sewing a button on a man's dress shirt. What? Continuity. I know. <laughs> oh, that was great. I was like, I got all excited. I'm like, oh my goodness, she's fixing a shirt. Now, but what is that timeline? It's like a month, right? Oh, yeah. Well. Well, no, because the dress came later. Okay. A couple weeks. I don't know that Marilla would sit on mending for a couple weeks. Well, hmm. it was a nice touch anyway. Maybe he's just uh, secretly distributing buttons willy-nilly. Oh, that's his calling card. Interesting. He's got women all over the place. I kind of like the secret side of Matthew. <laughs> I love, I love the way that Marilla can barely keep a hold of her joy with the news that she has to deliver to Anne <laughs> <laughs> about giving Anne the, the best present ever. Um I think more important than that dress, really. This scene is from the book. Yes. Except that TVN actually does take her coat. And there is a very Canadian bean in the middle. I've been. <laughs> Thank um, you. I'm like, a bean? What are you talking? Was that in the stew? I missed that. <laughs> there might also be beans in the stew, but I don't really know. So, um, yeah, book Anne says about Mrs. Barry, henceforth... I shall cover this past with the mantle of oblivion, the correctly used mantle, L-E, <laughs> of oblivion. Um, Diana's mother in the book cries and kisses Anne and gives her a grown-up tea on the best china at the Berry House. We don't see that in the series, but just so you know how, how sorry Mrs. Berry really is, since the rest of this scene is book accurate, I'm just only going to assume... That once Anne sees Mrs. Barry again, there's going to be a lot of uh, gratitude expressed. 
So Gilbert is out in his barn working on, I guess, a wagon wheel. It looks like he's trying to put it back on after having taken it off, to which I say you probably should have found a way to jack that up because that's going to be real hard. But what do I know? He's in the barn when Mrs. Kincannon calls him inside with panic in her voice. Panic. And Gilbert takes off running toward the house. And that's all we see of that. And now I think it's time to take a little break. And when we come back, we will finish the recap of episode six. And we're back. We have left Gilbert with his heart breaking and in great fear running toward his house. And then we cut to Anne and Diana running toward each other in the greatest of happiness. They've been separated for a month and they're back. They're back on track. They have permission to be friends as deeply as they wish to be friends. Evidently, the word is Aunt Josephine likes Anne a lot, which is as rare as, I don't know, hen's teeth, whatever they say. Aunt Josephine does not like anybody, and she really likes Anne, so that's shocking. And oh no, Aunt Josephine's going to stay for a month. Aunt Josephine is so very particular, and I just don't know how we'll stand it, she says. And that is saying something in the Berry House, don't you think? Oh yeah, they are very formal and very polite, and oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know. The last Anne knew, Aunt Josephine was just staying for the, you know, the week, because the premiere was back in Charlottetown. Right. Right. So this is a big deviation. And Diane explains that it's because she is grieving her companion, her friend forever and ever. There's total innocence here for us, too. Really? We don't know anything yet. She's grieving her friend, her best friend forever. That's all we know. And they kind of come together. They put their heads together like. We have something so special here. That's us. We're going to be friends forever and ever. And then Anne says, I would love to live with you too, but I know you're going to get married to a rich and handsome man. I hate your future husband already. To which Diana looks at her with the slyest smile I've ever seen on Diana's face and says, how's Gilbert? (laughs) (laughs) And Anne looks back at her and says, you're not funny. And I started to laugh out loud. I actually think I said the words, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) <laughs> I did too. It was so it was so real, you know. Your girlfriends know you better than you know you sometimes. So there's no playing with Diana. Anne can't pretend on the Gilbert front about that at <laughs> all. Well, simultaneously supporting Ruby's claim to Gilbert, which is funny. <laughs> no, that is quite a quandary she's found herself in. <laughs> at that point, Diana asks Anne if Gilbert's father is almost well, and Anne is I mean, she just stops in her tracks because she is smacked upside the head with a wave of guilt. She is the worst person ever. It just occurs to her right that moment that Gilbert's father might not live. He's probably going to die. And the next time that they see Gilbert, he too will be an orphan. I mean, kids that age, 13, I don't know that they can fully look that far in the future you know she has a different background so she's already got all these emotional skills that other people don't have yeah it is kind of surprising that it just occurred to her when she sees him every single day well there is a beautiful use of the church slash school bell which may in fact be the same building it was in little house on the prairie Uh, The school building served as the church building. I'm not sure how it is here, but it combines these two scenes. Anne and Diana are going to school and one half of the scene. And then we transition through the power of the bell to a funeral procession. It is so sad. They have brought out the cello. That's, you know, it's sad. 
So Gilbert is leading all the townsfolk. Everyone's in black behind this horse-drawn hearse to a freshly dug grave at the family plot. It's on their property. It's fenced in. It's quite lovely. There's probably, what, I tried to count them. I think I counted eight or ten, somewhere in there, gravestones. It's all the Gilberts. And that tells you how many Gilberts have died there, right? Well, or at least how long the family's been around. I mean, if that's three generations, that's not very surprising. Except it's the Blythes, not the Gilberts. But you know what I meant. (laughs) Yeah. The preacher is the worst conversationalist. He can't even pull off this occasion. It is very bad. I wrote that down and I underlined it and then I pointed arrows at it. He is not (laughs) good. He makes me so mad. Um, Mm -hmm. That coffin, I know the ground is frozen, is very shallow. Did you notice that? It's very shallow. Uh, And so as the stupid service is going on, I can't believe how bad he is. <laughs> just like I'm so overwhelmed by it. Oh, yeah. He's just reading John 14, 1 through 3, which is kind of a thing they read at some funerals. You know, it's in my father's house. There are many mansions. You know, it talks about presumably it talks about heaven, although it, the whole verse never actually says it's heaven. Well, he reads but, like Diana. That's the problem. Diana. The problem is not his selection of material. It's his poor delivery. Oh, I agree completely. Oh, yeah. And, you know, in the book, um, John Blythe lasted a lot longer than this. You know, he lasted to see the marriage of his son and actually his only son um, and his wife also was there. So this is a little off the timeline of the book to have him go so early. I mean, I see why they did it. It leaves Gilbert in a horribly vulnerable position, I think. Mm -hmm. So as the funeral goes on, you sort of wonder because Marilla is upset. She seems more upset than the average neighbor that is at the funeral. I mean, everybody, you know, you're sad at a funeral, but she seems weirdly sad. And Matthew seems to know the mystery because he holds her arm and gives her a very kind look and she accepts his attention gratefully. Um, Marilla isn't crying, though, really, though her tears are standing in her eyes, most surely. As the funeral breaks up, Anne looks at Gilbert and almost goes to talk to him. But honestly, she has forfeited her right to do it by acting like a crazy person for so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I don't know that she knew what to say if she was going to say anything to him. And everybody leaves Gilbert alone and he sits down at the bench you know, that they have in the little graveyard um, for, you know, memories. What do you, you know, those benches, those cement benches. Yeah. And it starts to snow. It was like, you know, gray and dismal. It was beautiful, but somber looking, you know, visually. And it's the snow is picking up. It's getting heavier. And he reaches out and he grabs a snowflake because remember, he's kind of a kid still, right? And he grabs at a snowflake and he looks at it in his hand and it slowly melts into what I thought was a teardrop. You know, it looked like the snowflake became, it wasn't his actual teardrops, but it's just the way it rolled. It just rolled like a tear rolling down someone's cheek. What? With this snowflake, I am crying. It unleashed a torrent. I mean, it was better than seeing Gilbert cry. Paul Fox is a genius. Clap, clap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This yeah. one, I mean, I felt like... When I cried in Castaway, when Wilson floated away, I was like, seriously, I'm crying that a snowflake just melted? Epic. So <laughs> Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, we see people crying at funerals all the time in movies, so he had to do something different. 
And that was perfect. I thought that was really great. So everyone is heading to the Blythe House for the post-funeral reception, which my family calls a collation. I don't know what the difference is, if there is one. Collation? I don't think I've even heard that word before. You know, anyway, I'm very grateful that Mrs. Kincannon has whatever meal this is under control. Um, I'm glad she's there. She's passing snacks and she's drafted Mrs. Lind to help her pass some things. So the ladies have it under control. Marilla is just sitting on a sofa. And when she turns down a snack, she looks up and sees a hat on top of a wardrobe. And the hat triggers a flashback. She goes back in, you know, her own memories, and it's a memory of her being courted by John Blythe. He is so handsome. He's just as handsome as his son. Don't you agree? I, oh. he's, he's charming, and he's putting this new hat on his head, and she's like, no, 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 it's too big for you. Maybe once you grow some more brains, it might fit. You know, they're bantering. <laughs> They're completely adorable. He's calling her Mar, and she's giggling and kind of coquettish, kind of. I mean, as coquettish as Marilla could ever get. Um, It's just they have such a charming young love relationship here. You know, it's playing out in her memory. And he reaches into his pocket, and he dramatically presents her with a blue ribbon. And he asks if he can tie it into her hair. And she agrees. And I am telling you, this is one of the hottest scenes ever. <laughs> so he just gently grabs her hair and he ties it in there. Uh, my heart was all a flutter. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it was a very well done uh, <laughs> emotional scene. I thought, well, my goodness, we don't need to see anything. We don't need to say anything mm-hmm. to have it be. Woo. Uh do you see what I mean now about how important that ribbon is? You thought I was joking before, but Marilla giving this ribbon to Anne, can we all agree, is a declaration of love? Now that we know where it comes from. Woo! And I have something to say about the hat, by the way. Oh? Because I was in the deja vu zone for a second. Doesn't Joe March or maybe Amy March make fun of Lori for this kind of hat in Little Women? It's about the same time frame. Um... It's like his college fashions, and it was super fashionable about 15 years after this. So, of course, the college guys adopted first, and the March women made fun of Lori for the same exact hat. That memory of yours, (laughs) I know, once again, astonishes me. But yes, I think you're right. Wow. And her hair does look red to me, by the way. At least her coloring looks like she's a redhead. Oh. You're thinking back to that conversation between uh, Rachel and Marilla that we were trying to decide if it was something they made up or they really did have a friend who had red hair. And when she got older, it darkened to a beautiful auburn that way back in what, episode one or two? Yeah. Ah, maybe it was Marilla. So John Blythe and Marilla, John and Mar, I bet they kissed. Do you think? Because they don't actually kiss on screen. But I don't think flashback Marilla gets called too because he's not reacting. I think not. I think they kissed. Uh, yeah, I want to think they kissed. And if they didn't, they were obviously comfortable enough that they probably already had. But I wondered because flashback Marilla hears someone calling her name and turns and it turns out to be Rachel in present time Marilla, if that makes sense. But I was wondering if at that point in the memory, if Marilla had heard something in the other room or, you know, something was going on and she turned. And it just 
they just put it at the same time? Yeah, don't know. Yes, it was well done. And I have to tell you, uh, here we are back in the present day. Mrs. Lind knows too. Mm-hmm. You know Mrs. Lind knows everything. And she probably always has known everything. Mm-hmm. Even, but I don't know what her maiden name was. Rachel Smith. You know, when she was little Rachel Smith at school, she probably knew every dang thing too. So I guarantee you she knew this. It's a pretty big deal. Um, And her face is very caring and concerned. Mm -hmm. But propriety says they can't say anything because remember, Anne forfeited her right to comfort Gilbert. And Mm -hmm. Marilla has forfeited her right to be the chief mourner at this funeral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she has to keep it all inside. She does. Rachel is trying to push this food on her and she turns it down and she turns and looks at Anne and she zeroes right in on that same blue hair ribbon. And uh, <laughs> that's got me to cry right then hmm. and there. A hair ribbon made me cry. What was it that made you cry? <laughs> A snowflake melting. A snowflake melting. For saps? No. We're easily manipulated by media. Wait, no. <laughs> that's kind of true so Anne's at the window and she sees Gilbert outside and Gilbert is coming to the house and then he stops and he realizes you know what I don't have the strength to take all the sympathy that's going to be I mean I if he walked into that house he'd be at the center of attention right mm-hmm. and he decides he's not gonna do it he can't do it so he turns around and heads back out so Anne grabs her wraps and runs out to try to cheer him up but but man Man, this is a just classic case of miscommunication. You know, she doesn't really know what to say. And I think she believes she's being helpful by telling him. She's obsessed with the word orphan, I think, Mm -hmm. Um, and being an orphan in the state of orphanhood. And she says, being an orphan has its challenges, but you already have so many advantages. Like she's trying to say, welcome to the club. Look at your current situation as opposed to when I became one. Like you can fend for yourself. That's good, right? And you're really very lucky. Um, Lucky. That's a bad word to choose. And maybe he is materially. But she says several times that she doesn't have any memory of her parents. and She is missing one key element of this whole situation, which is Gilbert loved his father and now he's gone. Mm-hmm. And he, of course, doesn't know her motivation about talking about herself being an orphan and this and that. And he just says, and why is this about you? And she deserved it. I'm sorry. She did deserve it, I think. Oh, totally. She absolutely did. She didn't know what to say. I mean, she was prattling on about although this was like a little light moment in this really heavy scene, but I've always thought that the minister prays so mournfully. So, so this suited him quite nicely. I think if she had stayed with the small talk, people understand that you're uncomfortable, like, you know, (laughs) quite a service or, you know, lovely weather, you know, people understand that as small talk. And if she had stuck with super awkward, yeah, that would have been okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just like put his arm on her shoulder and said, okay, I, I gotta be alone, you know, excuse me. I got to go. And no no harm, no foul. People are just awkward at funerals. But this whole going into the how he's lucky and blah, 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 she this, she that, that's pretty offensive, I think. Oh, completely. I, yeah. She deserved to see the back of his head walking off. She was the one that was left behind. She was trying to be nice, kind of like he always did with, in their relationship. He, she was, he's always trying to be nice to her. And she just gives him the cold shoulder. It was a role reversal there. Yeah. So. So then we transition out to the woods. Aunt Josephine is out for a walk, which seems to be completely out of character for her. Actually, she seems like the kind of lady that would have shoes that can't get wet. 
No. (laughs) So I don't know. So she is walking along and hears all kinds of blah, 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 blah. And what she hears is from what Susan calls the toilette exterior. (laughs) I don't know how to say it right, but it made sense. So the ant shack, the playhouse, the clubhouse, the toilette, whatever it is, she's in there pacing around. And what Aunt Josephine hears is... No need to think about him anymore. I've wasted far too much time on a dumb boy. (laughs) And so Aunt Josephine thinks she knows the deal and sticks her head in and uh, says romance is a pesky business. (laughs) Uh, So she's invited in. Cozy little retreat you have. (laughs) Which is really the best you can say for it, really. So in the course of their conversation, number one, she pulls a hanky out of her sleeve. How old are you when you pull hankies out of your sleeve wantonly? I don't know, but she's that old. Um, She says, you seem like someone with many possible outcomes and is also told that she is lucky, which is and recognizes, but only to herself, a bad word. Mm -hmm. So that was a little tiny bit of eye acting, reacting to the word lucky during the course of their conversation. But Aunt Josephine has some words of advice. Well, you can get married at any time that you choose. And if you have a career, you can buy your own self a white dress and wear it whenever you want. Brilliant. You know what that's hearkening back to is Aunt Jamesina in what? Book two of Anne of Green Gables? Where all Aunt Jamesina wanted when she got to heaven was she was going to buy herself a yellow silk dress because first her mother and then her husband forbade it. Oh. So I don't know why she couldn't just buy herself a yellow silk dress now. I don't know. Well, she's alive. She was going to wait till heaven. But anyway, that kind (laughs) of had a similar theme to what Aunt Josephine is saying now. Like, you don't have to wait for anybody to buy you the dress of your dreams. You can just get it for yourself. And that actually harkens back to one of our other old episodes of Queen Victoria. Because the white dress became popular, right, after she married Albert. And that was back in 1840-something. Right. So, you know, the white wedding dress hasn't been around all that long. I mean, time-wise. But it's already worked its way that far into culture. And determines she's going to be her own woman now. And that's good. And as they exit the shack, Aunt Josephine says, If you become a doctor, you can discover a cure for old age. <laughs> I, you know what I love about these two is that they both can learn from each other because she says that she had heard that walking into the winter air was good for one. So <laughs> she had learned that from Anne back when it helped Minnie Mae. And Anne just learned from her because she inspired her about the white dress. You know, buy your own. You don't need a man. Just buy your own white dress. Wear it whenever you want. Uh, we head back to Green Gables and Marilla, Matthew, and Anne are talking after supper. Matthew and Anne are at the table. Marilla is at the sink. And Anne is talking about how she's never going to get married and how she's going to be the heroine of her own story and what a wonderful role model she found in Aunt Josephine. Ooh, you know, Marilla's right there. <laughs> well, she's got to hurt. No, she, I don't think this is what's hitting Marilla because she does say that Matthew and Marilla are her role models too. And I don't think Marilla's that sensitive where she wants herself to be the only role model. No, I don't think so either. Um, but I think it had to like make a little ping. I, it had to, especially because Anne is talking about how great Aunt Josephine's life has been because she's independent and she's never been married and she's not tied to anything. She writes her own story, whereas Marilla is living the story that she felt she was obligated to live since she was a little girl. And that's why she's never been married. So that's like it was like a 
little sting and then a bigger sting. So heroin in my own story. I wondered if that was a quote from Jane Eyre and I couldn't find it in there, but I did find it in Dickens in David Copperfield from 1850. And he wrote, and Dickens is a very popular writer, right about now, by the way, whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. And also, modern day, Nora Ephron, popular quote from her, be the heroine of your own life, don't be the victim of it. That's quite a combination. Yeah. Life wisdom from Charles Dickens and Nora Ephron. I like it. So something is hitting Marilla. It may be the romance thing. It may be the heroine in my own life thing. Marilla is sort of quietly upset. And Marilla heads upstairs on a mission, really, to what is a surprisingly large closet. I'm very impressed by it. She gets out this box tied with twine. And the way she's looking at it is like she hasn't had it out for 40 years. I, she is looking at it like a foreign object. And I want everybody to look at how much her hands are shaking as she unties it. And she takes out a bundle of letters. And there are a lot of letters, like 10 to 12 letters. Her hands are shaking like mad crazy. And the music is playing from that flashback where the ribbon got tied onto her hair. It is very emotional. Um, ties you back into that happy time in her life. Um, and open the letter. And here are the words you see. You don't see the whole letter, but you do see key phrases. My dearest Mar, won't you reconsider? Please, my love. And then at the bottom, you see, you know my heart. Yours always, John. And Marilla is finally able to cry like she's wanted to all day. Mm -hmm. And I do wish she had felt able to talk about it with Matthew or could trust Mrs. Lynn to keep it to herself. Somebody... I wish she had somebody. And the lighting while she's crying is another one of those photographic moments. She's lit by one candle. She's sitting in a dark room in the light of that one candle and they kind of freeze on her and her emotional reaction. And it's a very good image. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful in a sad way. You know, that letter was the one, it was on the top. So it was the last letter from the stack. So that is the last communication she had with him. Hmm. You know, I don't, you know, maybe she wrote him back. Maybe she didn't. But she had kept those letters all these years. What are we going to do? Keep our text messages? But you know what? Similar to the way that our messages are kind of disposable, there were a lot of letters that ended up in the fire. That's so it's true. kind of a similar, like, it was just as easy to just walk into the kitchen and drop something in the oven. <laughs> That's true. But she didn't. She didn't drop that letter. Nope kept him. So we move from utter grief to absolute goofiness. I mean, there is so much mess on this table. The girls and Minnie Mae are at, the, I guess, the prep table of the berry kitchen. And it is covered with potato peelings and whatnot. And the berries, pigs, if they have pigs, they're going to eat well tonight. I'm telling you what. <laughs> I have never seen so much mess. Um, Anne is talking about romance and how she wants to be noticed for herself, not her dinner, which makes her friends laugh. It's foreign to Ruby and Diana. What is your goal then? And Anne says, I want to be known for my brain and my personality and who I am. And uh, that's so hilarious. She is ahead by a century. I guess so. Literally. <laughs> and Ruby cannot let go of the uh, herself. She's so boy crazy and weird. Doesn't Gilbert look more handsome now that he's sad? I mean, Ugh. come on, ladies. Be sensitive. Uh, I know. They are making this shepherd's pie to bring over to Gilbert, who is mourning. He is grieving back at his house. 
and all she can think about is you know how wonderful this pie is going to be because it's coming from us and don't you think he's so handsome i mean they were just giggling all over the place and cute little mini may obviously healthy again she's just getting as many snacks in as she can while is the she girls eating are raisins out of that jar sultanas i think they're raisins i don't know why they have the raisins out I don't either. There's no raisins in a shepherd's pie. I get this feeling that Mrs. Berry's kind of um, a stickler for eating between meals. So if I were her, I would bootleg out a jar of snacks, too. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So um, Diana and Minnie Mae's love is um, back to its usual level, I guess. We're back to normal. Like, you're a brat. Why can't I play with you? We're back to regular old sisterhood, which I loved. So Aunt Josephine comes in. She's totally mad at the level of noise, which, you know what? I can see her point, I guess, if they've, especially if they've been at it for hours and hours and hours, which there's no need for that. I have to say, I have a theory here is that she was in the other room trying to take a nap and they kept waking her up. Oh, maybe. So she comes in and says the lovely line, cackling hens, Lord, help me. Take the boy the godforsaken pie before I suffer a mental collapse. I love it. She's hilarious. Cackling hens. So um, evidently the parlor is unbearable. And Anne cheerfully says, it is weak and silly to say you cannot bear what it is your fate to be required to bear. Which, of course, Anne Josephine is fixing to fly off the handle until she realizes it's a quote from Jane Eyre, which she is literally holding in her arms and her face goes through a lot of processes. <laughs> As did mine, because once again, I realized Anne has memorized that whole book. Okay. I'm just going to tell you normal people don't do that. <laughs> Typical people, I guess I should say, because I mean, her level of photographic memory, I, it dazzles me as it does somebody else. I know very well. <laughs> Well, yes, I am very similar. I don't know if I could quote it verbatim, but I always have a vague idea that like, oh, hey, Joe made fun of a guy with a hat or maybe it was Amy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So chapter six, um, Jane Eyre is at that abusive Lowood school. It's Helen Burns who gives what I consider to be a bad piece of advice kind of on this chapter, especially since Helen Burns dies from the poor treatment she was trying to bear at the school. In fact, you know what? If you were to read chapter six, I'll give you a link. I dislike the whole thing, which ends in a seriously mentally abused girl that would be Helen sort of wishing for death. Well, I mean, you can read it for yourself. It's not a romantic part of the story. Well, you have to have the non-romantic parts to set up the romantic parts. Jane Eyre was on the uh, book list from the very beginning. I don't think we had any books. I would say we could add David Copperfield. Oh, okay. All right. I mean, we might as well if it's where the hero of my own story might come from. Okay. And that's a pretty big theme of this scenario. So Anne tries to go on and on about the ending. And of course, spoiler's not a word, but Aunt Josephine's like, wah, 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 wah. I just told you I just started it. But then she says, I'll report back on the ending. It was like she was inviting Anne to a book club. (laughs) Although I suspect they have to find someplace a little more comfortable than the Anne shack for it. So Aunt Josephine leaves and Anne is still in the rosy glow about Jane Eyre. And then suddenly, I literally do not know where this crying fit comes from. It's truly wackadoo. It's out of the blue. I don't know what triggered it. Because if she's thinking of the ending of Jane Eyre, which is, you know, marriage, I don't think she's crying about that. 
Uh, and Josephine didn't say anything triggering, did she? Mm-mm. No, I, I'm with you on this. I wasn't quite sure. I mean, the last one, you know, about Gilbert, that one made sense. I didn't quite understand this. But, I, you know, whenever it happens, it was something she had to realize. Well, I'd back away for real. If I was Ruby or if I was Diana, um, I don't know. I'd be back in me right now. And maybe she's hearing that flashback music, which is playing again. Maybe it's not just us. <laughs> and that would make a person sad. Well, she realizes suddenly whatever mental capacity had to be put in gear to get this to happen. She realized what she did wrong with Gilbert, though. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And she realizes that in a split second, somebody you love dies. They are gone from your life physically forever. And that just makes her start crying. And of course, you know, the girls are like, they don't know what's going on. And little uh, Minnie Mae says, Anne, you're crying in the potatoes. <laughs> Which will bring you down to earth. Potatoes are never romantic, are they? No, never, ever. So the three girls, Minnie Mae has evidently been disinvited, sad, um, are walking the pie in a basket, so many baskets, uh, over to Gilbert's house. And Ruby is so proprietorial. My crush, my rules. And Diana, of course, is the conventional, you know, this is what people say when someone has suffered a loss. This is what I'm going to say. I don't want you to upset him, says Ruby. He's already upset. His father just died. You know, they're having that argument. And Anne is like, you seriously do not know how I put my foot in my mouth last time I saw this guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, she does not even want to go. Um, she doesn't say that out loud. She just kind of, like, she has that look on her face. And she's trying to leave, uh, excuse herself from going to see him. And Ruby says, hold my hand. And then she goes, I'm so nervous. I know. Like, for a split second, you're like, oh, that's really nice, Ruby. You can see she's distressed and you want to comfort her. Oh, no, I guess not. It is all about you, Ruby. If I didn't know Ruby's ending, I would say Ruby would get married almost immediately, though. Oh, yeah. Well, she seems like someone that would pick up a lot of admirers later. Oh, yeah, definitely. In Gilbert's kitchen, um, Gilbert is sitting at the table and the girls pretty much go to type. Um, you know, Ruby gushes about, I hope this comforts you in your time of grief. And Diana says the conventional things that you say. And Gilbert takes the lid off and looks at it and Diana loyally says, Anne made the topping, and he does acknowledge her presence. Um, it's kind of medium awkward, but it's kind of nice that young girls took the time to make this and walk it over. And But then Anne is crazy again. <laughs> Anne made the topping. She's a really good cook. And she says, but I would make a terrible wife. And then there's this moment where she realizes, wait, <gasps> I said this out loud. I mean, like, I don't even get it myself. Becky Grant. I don't get it. I don't know what her thought process is. I don't know where that came from. And then she realizes she said it out loud and runs out the door. And there is the weirdest, awkwardest moment. Where everyone is silent. Uh, yeah, it, I couldn't. It couldn't get more awkward. And I can just imagine Ruby thinking, "Darn it, Anne, you ruined this for me again." Because Gilbert wraps up their visit pretty quick, and Ruby and Diana leave pretty much right behind Anne. Oh. That's so awkward. I don't even know. Can you explain? Why did she say what I would make a terrible wife? Well, because that's been on her mind, you know, about not getting married and living her own life. And when they were cooking it, they were talking about how how it's a great thing to have to get a man or to please your husband or whatever. And how these skills are super important. These cooking skills, because you're going to be a wife. And she's like thinking, I don't think I want to be a wife. And then he said, you know, they're talking about the topping, about her cooking. 
So okay. that's why it came yeah. up. I was like, I get that is a grasping at straws. But yes, I guess I see how because Ruby said the way to a man's heart is through his stomach and mm-hmm. has just made something delicious. But I'm not interested in your heart. <laughs> see, I guess I can see it now. I was so confused. I just wrote like a bad word. On oh, really? Paper. Which one? Well, I wrote what? W and T and F. <laughs> But I didn't write out any other bad That's words. like an acronym. That's not even a word. Okay. <laughs> so back at Green Gables, Anne comes downstairs and she stops. And she's looking at the wedding picture, which I assume is Marilla's mother and father, and says, Marilla, did you ever want to marry? Of all things. I mean, Marilla is, as usual, scrubbing that table. Of all things to ask Marilla <laughs> right now, now's the time to tell someone. Surely you could tell Anne. Surely you could understand, right? But maybe it's inappropriate. I don't know. Does she? No, she doesn't tell Anne. She says, only, there was a time when I thought I might, but it was impossible. And that's all she says. And then, of course, Anne can't let it go. Oh, that sounds tragical. Were you a woman scorned? Just like conversationally. But that really gets Marilla to turn around angrily. I was not. Like, how dare you think I was a woman scorned? (laughs) Um, She just said, I was needed at home. And Anne says, forever? And then the subtext is, yes. Well, that's just how things worked out, says Marilla. And we get a little more details. My mother never recovered from my older brother's death. She, and then I screamed out loud, what? She what? No, Marilla doesn't say. She said, I was needed here. You know, tell me the dang story. I know, because dad's not in the picture. If the mother needed her, you know, it wasn't that the family needed Marilla to stay. It was that she said that her mother needed her. Well, and evidently Matthew was pulled out of school at the same time. So it was an all skate. Yeah, but it sounds like it's only the three of them. Mama, Marilla, and Matthew, you know. We've been speculating all along of what happened. You know, was the dad abusive? What happened to Michael? Did he commit suicide? What actually happened? Not having the dad in that little scenario she painted, it's kind of pointing towards dad being involved in the death, right? I don't know. I hope we find out in season two because I don't think we find out in season one. Mm-mm. So Matthew's at the general store and spots Gilbert. And I think Gilbert is getting a lot of vultures circling his property because his initial reaction is very cold and standoffish and says, I'll let you know if I decide to sell. So when he understands what Matthew is trying to say, Matthew's like, no, 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 no. You misunderstand me. I I noticed that you had to let a couple of fields go fallow and I and my hand Jerry will be glad to come over and help you get on your feet. Like any good neighbor. And it's such a generous offer if you think about it. Like these men are going to come over and seed a field that they have no financial interest in. They're going to put in some hard sweat equity on Gilbert's behalf. And that's very touching, I think. And he <laughs> he realizes and he says thanks, very sincerely says thanks um, and says, I, I'll let you know, I, I didn't ever want to be a farmer. And the look on Matthew's face at that point is like it's incomprehensible to him. You didn't want to be a farmer. <laughs> what, what else is what there? What else is there? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the shopkeeper, kind of impolitely, I must say, mentions twice to please settle up now. Like, you know, pay up your, your credit, uh, i.e. before you have no money, I guess we're supposed to understand. Um, Matthew owes $6.10, which is about 175 200 bucks. It's not extreme in today's money. But um, the Adele Marie went down. 
and that's just something bad. I think we're supposed to understand side um, excursions for the oh. for the full Anne of Green Gables experience. And I was looking at where they went and you know how much they cost. <laughs> I never did find the Adele Marie because I moved on. I was like, I got to get out of this hole, and I moved on. <laughs> Sometimes rabbit holes have a lot of forks in them. They do. So the store clerk. I'm sure this is exposition needed for the audience, but I don't know. He, The crops went down. The ship didn't have insurance. Um, this is going to be bad. There's no way to recoup the money. Matthew probably would have known all that, but we don't. So I guess we had to be told by the shopkeeper. The shopkeeper asked at the very beginning, he's like, oh, that ship went down. I think you had some crops on it. And Matthew doesn't pick up on it because he's looking over at Gilbert. Right. So I think the shopkeeper is just fishing around to find out more information. So he brings it up again. And finally, Matthew takes the bait and he's like, uh, what ship was it? So, yeah, Matthew definitely had crops on there. Billy and what we're calling the Billy Etts catch up to Gilbert in town. And Billy is a moron. Hey, bud. Hey, bud. Hey, bud. Which reminds me of, did you ever see Pleasantville? Uh-huh. <laughs> Where oh, the yeah. kid's name is actually Bud. When the mean <laughs> guy talks to him, he's always like, hey, bud. I don't know. It makes me laugh. <laughs> That's all I could think of this whole time. But he, he says mean things about Anne. He just keeps getting in his face. You need to come back to school and tell that ugly orphan this and that and blah, blah, blah. And notice, everyone, that the schoolboys still have knickers on. And Gilbert is a man with long trousers. Very subtle. Very subtle. When you grow up, you have the long pants. I'll be interested to see what age Prince George takes his shorts and puts them to pants. Oh. Because you've ever noticed little Prince George of Cambridge always has short pants on. That's a British upper class scenario that is evidently still in operation in Canada. That never made sense to me, but okay. I know. Aren't their little legs cold? I know they wear those thick stockings. Yeah, but still. Gilbert does say, you know, I'm not your bud. And then he defends Anne. She's smart. Deal with it. Now, you know, why is he defending Anne, I wondered. And it is, evidently, book people, this is for you, the only thing for you in this scene. It's a one-sided feud, just like in the book. Gilbert has no beef. It's just Anne. Mm -hmm. So that's good. And then we have a shaky cam fight scene that makes (laughs) me kind of feel sick. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Billy did get in a couple good punches, but then Gilbert kind of left him laying in the snow, cowering back whenever Gilbert came at him. So it's like, uncle, done. So Gilbert won that little fight. It was kind of authentic. I mean, that's how boys fight. It like lasts 15 seconds tops. We'll say that one more time. Then he said it one more time. And that was the, okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> He's like telling him to pull the trigger. There's a, you got a couple trigger phrases going on in there, Billy. If you want to say them again, I can show you what that means. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, yeah, bud, bud. Yeah, right. Yeah. What's your problem? I thought when Gilbert picked up his bag of groceries, he spent a lot of time looking at the stove polish. I'm not sure why that rose to the level of the top of his list. But anyway. Uh, wait, um, did you see the little like it looked like the little stove next to it? I didn't know if that was just like a display stove. It kind of looked like an easy bake oven Victorian style. It could be either thing, because even now, if you go to Dick's Sporting Goods or somewhere, they have teeny tiny tents to show you what it looks like in the package, and mm-hmm. you have to go get it out of the back. So it could be a manufacturer's sample, or it could be a toy stove. I literally just yesterday went to the toy museum that's within walking distance of my house, and they have a cast iron toy stove there that really burns wood, which would never fly now. Mm-mm. But evidently, you could boil up your little tea kettle, just like mom's. 
Yeah. I'm guessing someone's going, wait, there's a toy museum in Kansas City? Yep. Yep, there is. I'll put a link on the show notes. My mom loved that place because she was into, she had a dollhouse going on, you know, with the, the big dollhouse with all the tiny details. Right. Yeah, she did that as an adult. She thought it was a fun project. So she loved going there. So then we go to the graveyard. Um, Marilla is standing there. The wind is whistling and you see Gilbert approaching. And Marilla said something that I didn't understand at the beginning. She says, I'm sorry to intrude. And I thought, he doesn't own this graveyard. But then I thought, oh, wait, it's a family graveyard. So she's literally standing on his land without his permission. So I guess that Mm -hmm. makes a little more sense. At first I was like, why are you apologizing? But then I get it. But Marilla and Gilbert have a nice conversation about John, his dad, John Blythe. She said, I wonder how he'd feel about being so stationary. He was a traveler at heart. And um, evidently he was in the military, we learned from Gilbert. And Marilla says he had a life of adventure then. And then says, I'd heard he settled in Alberta. So they'd lost touch. They'd lost touch. Yeah, it was that last letter. That was it. And I'm confused by what Gilbert says next. So if somebody can untangle this for me, he said, we were a large family for a while. I'm the last, the only. So. Uh, Well, I can tell you, you're probably thinking of Book Gilbert because Book Gilbert only had his mother and his father and him. It was a very small family. He was the only child. But in this scenario, it sounds like there was a lot of kids and the mom and I got the impression that they all like went, I was thinking maybe like in a flu epidemic or something. This, this doesn't make sense to me. So he says those two, the prodigal sons, moved back right after Gilbert was born. So how does he know about large families and being sad about them? Well, he knew that they were a large family. I mean, he heard the stories from his dad. He knew, but the only two that were left were John and Gilbert. That was it. That was their family. So they moved back. I know. I guess it just seems like the the acting seems to imply that he remembers all these brothers and sisters and his mother, but he wouldn't. No. Okay. No, I th- my impression was he just knew that they were a bigger family, but now they're now it's just him. Okay. All okay. Alone. So he's only had his dad for as far as he can remember ever, really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. I was a little confused about like, well, how do you know? Okay. And then if Gilbert is, say, 15... Marilla never saw John any place and they never spoke. I mean, that's really very upsetting. And to me, makes it very clear that it didn't end well. If they haven't, they have not spoken in 15 years. Well, again, book Marilla and John, they had a fight. That was what ended their relationship. So they wouldn't maybe have spoken. But yeah, I agree with you. It's not a very big place. They had to have stumbled across each other at some point, right? And Anne lives the closest to Gilbert. Or wouldn't have been tasked with hauling his books over there every night, right? Mm-hmm. There would have been other fires and stuff where the whole town turned out. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's not good. During this conversation, though, Marilla, I think unwittingly, inspires Gilbert with his father's dream of travel. She mentions his love of big cities, places that seemed impossible, and then delivers a bombshell to Gilbert. A realization, I think, on her part... There was nothing he could say to talk me into leaving. And then she says, I wish. And then she stops like, oh, children, I'm not supposed to reveal the depth of my heart to this child. And then Gilbert realizes like he asked you to go with him. It's like finding out your parents were so cool before you were born, kind of. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
She says, I'll always be grateful that he thought I'd be brave enough to go. And now I'm thinking of that flashback and feeling a little pang of might have been myself. But it almost seems like a relief to me um, that Marilla knew all the time there's nothing he could have said to make her go. You know, like even even if her parents had not needed her, she just wasn't brave enough to go. And she had come to that realization and had closed the door, maybe during the night of crying, but it it feels like a better place to be for her. Do you know? I don't know. Maybe I'm taking this too far, but she said she wasn't brave enough. And, you know, we all have free will. She says this line here. It's it's my favorite one. She says, obligation can be a prison. So that's why she knew she could have broken out of that prison, but she wasn't brave enough to do it. Right. Right. So, yeah. Well, and she does say, I've always wondered, and then doesn't finish that sentence, but I think... She has delivered her second inspirational sentence. Obligation can be a prison. Gilbert doesn't want to be a farmer. He feels like he kind of has an obligation to continue on the land that has been his family's, etc. But like, maybe he doesn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has his moment with that line, you know, like Anne had with the white dress. He was pondering what his future was, you know, what to do with the property, you know, what to do with his life. And um, maybe that one line obligation can be a prison that's heavy that was his moment totally and so then marilla genuinely says please reach out to us and so the second member of the cuthbert family has surprised the hell out of him today (laughs) yeah Yeah. and i don't think he overlooked them you know like a lot of people are like oh those are the kooky cuthberts i don't think he ever overlooked them like that he respects Anne. yeah so maybe he sees a place for himself in their family too soon, too soon. I don't think so. Don't all the think girls so. are thinking about it. The girls are all like planning to be married and the guys are all like, bud. Honestly, I think that's the case even today. Yeah. Oh, definitely. There's no groom magazine, is there? I don't know. No. Gosh, I hated giving up bridal magazines after I got married. As Aunt Josephine says, you can walk into the CVS and buy your own bridal magazine, Susan. Maybe I'll buy you a subscription for Christmas. No, what would I do? Like, want to like plan? I don't even have kids that have birthday parties anymore. I'm so sad. And my own daughter isn't going to be here on her 21st birthday. I was, she had a chance to go to New Orleans with me for her 21st birthday. But instead, do you know where she picked Beckett? She picked Versailles. No, she picked Harry Potter World with her friend. Oh, good. Yay. I like Harry Potter World. (laughs) I know. I thought you'd like that. I'm going to take her to. New Orleans later, but. All right. We're back at Green Gables and Matthew, evidently back from the general store and all the knowledge of the ominous wreck of the Adele Marie, is digging through a chest of drawers for certain papers. And woo, this sure is ominous because he looks to make sure Marilla or Anne didn't hear him getting all these things out of here. That does not bode well. No, not at all. He does look a little frantic. Upstairs, not listening, Anne is trying to write an apology letter to Gilbert, and she starts her attempt, I'm sorry, I know you're not lucky, and then she's like, oh, and then she crumples up the paper, that is not what I meant. So she decides she needs some further information, and she takes off for the Barry's house, where she bursts in, similar to the way Diana burst into the house earlier. Yeah, Definitely. So she runs through the kitchen and Mary Jo's like, Diana's not home. That's good. I'm here to see Miss Barry. And she runs up the stairs and bursts into Miss Josephine's room. And Miss Josephine is crying. 
And Anne does have the decency to offer to leave when she realizes. But Miss Barry just says, it's fine. Grief is the price you pay for love. Also, that was a tough call on favorite lines. I know. And when Anne says about Gertrude, the companion in question, that we all understand is her girlfriend. We all understand this. We do. Anne doesn't. I don't think Anne's with us, and I think that's just okay. That's we don't, She doesn't have to be. Anne says she was your kindred spirit. The look on Miss Josephine's face is so amazing. Yes, that is what she was. I mean, that is an amazing look of... Like, kind of when you eat the right thing at the exact right time and your body tells you, this is exactly what I needed. Mm -hmm. That's the look that she has on her face. And again, it's coming from a person that she, the least person that she would ever have imagined that would understand her so well. Yeah. You know, this former servant, you know, little redheaded girl who bosses people around and doesn't treat elders with the respect that they deserve, (laughs) you know. But she gets her. And this is where I think uh, Anne and Josephine just kind of, you know, they their relationship is cemented here. They had a great relationship in the book. It was a little bit different. And the Josephine of the book was not anything like this Josephine, except for, you know, the wealth and the opinionated thing. But um, and their relationship was very close. But well, I think exactly like. You know how they've expanded Jerry, who is a character that hardly even appears except Mm -hmm. by mention in the book. They made him into a fully fleshed out 360 degree character. They've done the same thing with Miss Josephine. And I really admire that. I think that is great. Yeah, I do, too. Completely. There was points where um, in the book series, I wondered if, you know, one of the main reasons why Josephine was there was so that she could financially bail Anne out later. Yes. You know, it's like, come on, there could be more to this relationship for these two people who are such independent thinkers and unconventional in a conventional world. So I'm glad they gave her some more depth. Well, I just think that similar to the way that the Slate incident became something that I understood more after we gave Anne all that motivation Mm -hmm. to be upset, you know, I think having Miss Josephine as you say, financially bail her out later, will make, if there's a season two, a lot more sense than if she just got um, intrigued by her conversation. Who cares? All right. So Mm -hmm. during this conversation, Anne says, you and I are not the marrying kind. And she says, as we know, I was in my way. So Miss Barry inspires Anne to action when she says, I want you to live a life with no regrets. And Anne gives her a kiss and takes off, running. She knows what she's going to do. Meanwhile, we see Matthew. Matthew's at the bank, and he's going over things with a banker. He's trembling. He's looking around uh, like he can't believe what is happening. It doesn't look good. It looks um, grim. Why is there a book? What is this happening? What is the banker telling him? We can't hear anything. We just don't know. So we go from that sadness to Anne, who is so happy as she races through the woods, over the snow, to the Blythe house. We've got the happiest rom-com music playing right now. <laughs> I uh, It is soaring string music, like the love are running toward each other through a field of daisies. It's like the happy ending music. Not, I shouldn't say happy ending. That's inappropriate. Um, 
it is the uh, rom-com final love scene that we all want and bang, bang, bang on the door. Huh. The benches are on the table. That's weird. Like, is somebody mopping? I don't know. But then we go to the back door. We look in the window and the music goes into the minor key. Everything's covered in sheets. Is he gone? Is she too late? And our last photo moment is Anne in the window, realizing that she has waited too long. And that's the end. Cue super sad music. (laughs) Okay. Are we ready to rate this? I think I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go, I can't decide between an eight and a half and a nine. I loved the Minnie Mae scene so much better than the book. And that automatically kind of, I'll, I'll go with nine. Wow, you were way higher than me. I had it at almost an eight, 7.95. I kind of looked at it. It was just so sad. And there was like a thin crust of hopeful around it. I don't know. It's just sad. But um, there was quite a bit of Anne Cannon in here. A lot um, that did follow the book a bit more than some episodes. Um, I did love the new storylines. I love the new Josephine and... Um, their relationship, I really, really did. But I, I don't know what to tell you. The thing that took the points off for me is something that is revealed in the next episode. Okay. <laughs> and they don't, they don't prepare us for that. That's why I gave it points down. I'm afraid it made me sad. And um, yeah, and that last thing that I'm not going to say. I liked the symbolism of the snowflake melting. I did not like things that make this show lose points for me is when. When I can't understand why somebody says something, well, you should have led up to that. Like when Anne breaks down at the table and starts crying, I don't understand what the trigger point was. I don't. And I should. It's another Katie Maurice moment for me where it's too disturbingly mental for me to feel like, oh, isn't this touching? She realized at the table that Gilbert's going to be sad and he loved his dad. I'm not feeling her emotion. I'm feeling more like, back away, ladies. She's got a knife. (laughs) And that's not what I'm supposed to be feeling. So I feel like "Mm, I've been pulled the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I I agree. Yeah. This, I mean, there's so many better episodes. I mean, this one was good and had its moments of brilliance, but I don't know. It wasn't my favorite. Maybe because it's coming on the heels of my favorite. My bar was set too high. Yeah, maybe. This one just got up a point because of that scene with Minnie Mae and the bantering with Josephine. That was better than the book. Better than the book always bumps you way up. Oh, yeah, that's true. I am making something from the Anne of Green Gables cookbook for each episode, except for the last one when I made it up and it was delicious. Uh, This time I actually put it on my family for dinner. I made saucy chicken, which was I, I don't know the show didn't really inspire me to eat anything sweet so the barbecue sauce wasn't right I tried it um it was a little bland for my taste there was too much it was like a, it was like all onions in the sauce there was it's called saucy chicken but there wasn't really a lot of sauce so I I corrected that and it was delicious <laughs> well my goodness I don't know man I don't know maybe I need to make um I'm down for lemon pie although I'd rather just buy it is that in the cookbook? Uh, if it's not in the cookbook, they missed an opportunity because everybody's always making freaking lemon pie for every occasion. I'm looking in the, nope, no lemon pie and no scones. What? Well, yep. There's Ruby's tea biscuits, which are kind of scone-ish, but more cookie. Mm-mm. There should be a second edition. 
They could make shepherd's pie, and oh. they could make all those scones. Well, that would be an Anne with an E cookbook. Well, someone with the rights to Anne with an E should get on it. <laughs> well, that is about it for our coverage of Anne with an E, episode six. Stay tuned for Anne with an E, episode seven, the last and final in the current season. We have no information as to whether there'll be a season two. Um, and as soon as we know, we'll let you know. But as of right now, there's not. In my head, there is. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. We would love to hear what you think about Anne and the gang. Heck, we would super love to hear what you think about our biographical episodes. And you can get in touch with us on the Facebook page or on Twitter, where you need to search for the History Chicks with an X. We have got Pinterest boards like crazy. You can follow us on Instagram. We are just all over the place. If you would like to send a lengthy message, we would welcome your email at chicks at thehistorychicks.com. We can't wait to talk to you. you are-